Nephi loved the writings of Isaiah with all of his figurative imagery, symbolism, metaphors, and simile. Nephi wanted his descendants to love those writings too. But Nephi also wanted for his children, as well as for latter-day readers, to understand the simple reality of Christ's mission and the clear teachings of Christ's everlasting gospel. This is Between the Lines of the Book of Mormon, and we're your hosts. I'm Jay Harris. And I'm Andrew Harris. And we welcome you to this podcast today. In chapter 25 of Second Nephi, Nephi says, Now I, Nephi, do speak somewhat concerning the words which I have written, which have been spoken by the mouth of Isaiah. He's using Isaiah's words, but he understands, he says, that these are hard to understand. They're not the easiest words to understand. And he says, I'm going to speak plainly. He mentions that he didn't teach his children this way. He taught them the words of Isaiah, but he tried to teach them, I think, with plainer words than what Isaiah had taught. And there's really some great verses in Isaiah's writings that do mention great gospel principles about Jesus Christ and about the house of Israel. But then there's in-between verses that sometimes, while they might have good symbols, I don't know what all of those symbols mean. So Nephi, instead of speaking in this traditional Jewish poetry that was typical of Isaiah, says, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to speak clearly so you can understand And then he just includes, and my soul delighteth in the words of Isaiah. So he says, I love these words, but I'm going to speak plainly to you so you can understand. And I think he was writing this for his actual descendants and his family members. But I think also he's writing this for us today. In verse 8, Nephi says, I know that they shall be of great worth unto them in the last days. For in that day they shall understand them. So we're supposed to understand these things because they were written for us. And I'm sure as they come about and these prophecies are fulfilled, we'll say, oh, I see, that was a prophecy of Isaiah. But until that happens, we're a little in the dark as far as understanding all of those things. Some of the writings of Isaiah have already been fulfilled. And I think those things maybe are a little bit easier for us to understand. Like what we talked about last week when we were talking about the verses that mention Christ being born when we read those now, it's pretty plain. We go, oh, that makes Oh, that's right. That's Christ. You know, and it's obvious. But before those prophecies had been fulfilled, maybe it was like, what is he talking about here? That's right. Nephi says that when they left Jerusalem, his father had told them that Jerusalem would be destroyed. And then he confirms to them that they have been destroyed, save it be those which are carried away captive into Babylon. So even though they had not lived through this destruction of Jerusalem, Nephi assured them that that prophecy had been fulfilled, that if they had stayed in Jerusalem, their lives would have been taken. And he says, notwithstanding they have been carried away, they shall return again, this is in verse 11, and possess the land of Jerusalem. So the Jews would be taken captive into Babylon, but the Lord would allow them to return again to Jerusalem and possess that land of their inheritance. All of these things that he's talking about here are mentioned in Isaiah's writings. They're sometimes more symbolic, but he mentions all of these things happening. And we'll try to capture some of those in a minute or two after we go through Nephi's words. Yeah. He said then in verse 12 that the only begotten of the Father, yea, even the Father of heaven and earth, shall manifest himself unto them in the flesh. Jehovah would come to the earth and manifest himself unto the Jewish people in the flesh. Yeah, and they would reject him, 
they would crucify him. After his crucifixion, he would be laid in a sepulcher for the space of three days, and then by miracle he would rise from the dead with healing in his wings. How did Nephi know these things? He's specifically talking about that vision that he had where he got to talk to an angel that showed him all of these future events. Right. So he'd seen these things in vision, so he knew they would come about for sure. Then he talks about after the Savior is resurrected, that Jerusalem would be destroyed again for the second time. And after Jerusalem would be destroyed, he says that the Jews shall be scattered among all nations. And he said, after they have been scattered, this is in verse 16, and the Lord has scourged them by other nations for the space of many generations, they shall be persuaded to believe in Christ. And in verse 17, and the Lord shall set his hand again the second time to restore his people. So he came the first time hoping that they would accept him. They not only didn't accept him, but they rejected him. They crucified him. They rejected the entire gospel. But the Lord has promised that he will set his hand a second time to restore his people. And it says, He will proceed to do a marvelous work and a wonder among the children of men. That's the restoration of the gospel and the restoration of Christ's church upon the earth. So we're now waiting as we preach the gospel for the Jewish people to accept Christ and to recognize that he is the Savior of the world and the Messiah that they have waited so long to come to them. When this will happen, we don't know. But we know when Christ appears again that they will run to him and rejoice in his coming. So that day is yet to come. Nephi did know when some of these things were going to happen. In verse 19, he mentions that the Messiah would come in 600 years. So he knew exactly when that was going to happen. And he also knew that he would be called Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so they knew the name Jesus Christ. This was not something that was foreign to them. And then Nephi explained, There is none other name given under heaven, save it be this Jesus Christ, of which I have spoken, whereby man can be saved. In verse 23, a beautiful scripture, For we labor diligently to write, to persuade our children and also our brethren to believe in Christ and to be reconciled to God. For we know that it is by grace that we are saved after all we can do. They understood the atonement. They understood that Jesus Christ was going to come. They had all this knowledge that Nephi had received and Lehi had received that the rest of the people in Jerusalem didn't really understand. And so they talked about Christ. They preached about Christ. They prophesied about Christ. And they taught their children about Christ. But they continued to live the law of Moses. And then I think speaking to us, he says, My people, ye are a stiff-necked people. (laughs) Wherefore, I have spoken plainly unto you, that ye cannot misunderstand. So to his own people and to us today, he says, I'm not writing like Isaiah wrote. I'm not making this a mystery at all. I have clearly stated exactly what will come to pass. Now you need to understand and accept these teachings. Yeah. Okay, now let's go through some of the writings of Isaiah and see if we can interpret some of the things that he said. So we'll start in chapter 20. Verse 17, it says, And the light of Israel shall be for a fire, and his holy one for a flame, and shall burn and shall devour his thorns and his briars in one day. And I think this is also a reference to Christ being a light for the people, or a fire that would burn the thorns and briars, those sins that would destroy us. Next, in verse 21, Isaiah is referring to the fact that in the last days, the Jews would be scattered. 
And he says, The remnant shall return, yea, even the remnant of Jacob, unto the mighty God. For though the people Israel be as the sand of the sea, yet a remnant of them shall return. These are the people that would be brought back to Jerusalem in the last days. Their homeland would be secured again. And it would not be all of them, but a remnant of that house of Israel shall return. Yeah. In 27, it says, And it shall come to pass that in that day his burden shall be taken away from off thy shoulder, and his yoke from off thy neck, and the yoke shall be destroyed because of the anointing. Referring to the atonement. Yeah, and how it can free us from that burden. And then in the last two verses of chapter 20, he says, And the high ones of stature shall be hewn down, and the haughty shall be humbled and he shall cut down the thickets of the forest with iron. In the next chapter, it kind of continues the same idea. We're talking about how these trees would be hewn down. But then it says, And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The stem of Jesse is like a stump, a tree stump, that's been hewn down. Jesse, of course, is King David's father. So King David's people and King David the highest king of all of Israel, they would all be brought down low and destroyed. But even though they had been brought down low, out of a miracle, this little branch will start to grow up out of this out tree of stump. stump. That's right. And that would symbolize Christ growing up and bringing salvation to this people. A branch that would bring forth fruit and that would be productive. And it says, The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. I know, that's beautiful. With righteousness shall he judge the poor and reprove with equity for the meek of the earth. In so many of these verses, he's referring to the fact that the Messiah would come and be this great individual who would free the people from their sins. Yeah, he has this pattern where he brings up all this destruction and negative things, and then he'll talk about Christ, and then he'll go back to talking about destructions and then talk about Christ again. And sometimes it's a matter of one verse to the next. Yeah. He jumps from one thing to the next, and it's a little bit hard to follow because it doesn't always follow in sequence. Let's talk about verse 10, actually, too. I like this one, too. It says, And in that day shall be a root of Jesse, which shall stand for an ensign of the people. To it shall the Gentile seek, and his rest shall be glorious. I think it's a reference to Christ still, but it's more a reference to his people. And that's, I think, us today in the church. We're an enzyme for the whole world to help gather people to Christ. And in 22, it says, And in that day thou shalt say, O Lord, I will praise thee. Though thou wast angry with me, thine anger is turned away, and thou comfortest me. So anytime we go through that repentance process, God has a reason, a really good reason, to be angry with us. We've made it so that his only begotten son had to suffer and die. He could be angry with us, but instead of being angry with us, it says his anger is turned away. And not only is his anger turned away, but he comforts us. I think that's beautiful. I think it is too. He says, Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For the Lord Jehovah is my strength and my song. He also has become my salvation. Yeah. Jehovah would come to the earth and provide salvation for all of his people. Chapter 23 almost feels like a new story. Yeah. <laughs> it's a break from 22. He starts out talking about mountains and highness, and he's talking about those things in reference to the goodness and righteousness and power and glory of God. 
And so he says, lift up the banner upon the high mountain. I think of that as the temple, as us lifting up this ensign to the nations by bringing people to the temple. In verse 10, he says, For the stars of heaven and the constellations thereof shall not give their light. The sun shall be darkened in his going forth, and the moon shall not cause her light to shine. I think that's referring to the darkness that came at the time of Christ's crucifixion. In the Americas, of course, the darkness was even greater. It lasted longer, at least. And so, yeah, there was that darkness and that the sun refused to give any light at that point. And in verse 13, he says, Therefore, I will shake the heavens and the earth shall remove out of her place in the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of his fierce anger. And we know that happened. That In the year that Christ died, the earth was shaken. Yeah. Verse 12 is kind of interesting, too, because it says, I will make a man more precious than fine gold, even a man than the golden wedge of Orpher, which, <laughs> that's a weird phrase, but Orpher was this place where all this gold came from in India. And he's saying, I'll make a man more precious than all this gold. That shows what the purpose of the atonement is. Christ is taking us worthless servants and turning us into something that has such great worth, where he says, the worth of souls is great in the sight of God. Chapter 24, this is a longer chapter again. Isaiah then talks about an event that happened long before in pre-mortality when Satan rebelled against Heavenly Father. In verse 12, he says, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? For thou hast said in thy heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Yet thou shalt be brought down into hell to the sides of the pit. Yeah, he's going to be brought down to nothing. I also like in 16, it says, They that see thee shall narrowly look upon thee, and shall consider thee, and shall say, Is this the man that made the earth to tremble, and that did shake kingdoms? <laughs> in other words, is Satan the individual we feared? Why, he has no power that we should tremble. So we're not going to get into discussing all the interpretations of Isaiah, and we're not going to pretend that we know all the interpretations of Isaiah either. Right. But we wanted to discuss how we can learn from Isaiah, because I think it's very similar to the parables of Jesus. Yeah. Jesus always taught in parables, because he did not intend everyone to understand he wanted people to work at getting the interpretation of the parable. Yeah. And I think it's a great way of teaching because if you have to work, it becomes more personal. It becomes something that you have almost taught yourself. You've learned something that you deeply understand instead of just hearing someone explain something and having it go in one ear and out the other. It's now almost a part of you. And I think that then when you go back and review the things that you've learned, there's such reward in realizing now I understand what that's all about. <laughs> and then when you review it the second time, it's amazing how additional insights come to you so that it's a constant process. When Jesus would teach in parables, they were stories. And so I'm sure people would listen to the story and think, you know, this is an entertaining story, but what does it mean? There's got to be some kind of deeper meaning to this. Sometimes they consulted with each other and said, this is what I think he meant. What do you think? Well, I thought he was referring to this. And so they would confer with each other and talk yeah. about what that could possibly mean. And we do the same thing, right? Right. When we are at church, right after we've all read over some scriptures, we get together 
And we have these discussions and we say, what do you think this meant? And we explain it maybe to each other in the ways that we understood it. And so I think that's kind of how the disciples work too. Listen to what he had to say and then they talk to each other about it. They all gave it their own thought process. But one of the greatest ways that they were able to understand the parables of Jesus was to actually turn to him because he was right there with them. And they said, now you explain it to us. What does this mean? This is what we understand. Are we right? Are we correcting what we think? No, that's not what I was referring to. Let me explain to you what I meant. We can still do that today, and I think that's, hopefully you're doing that. But if not, sometimes I forget to do that. I forget we can go right to the source of these teachings, the principles of these prophets, and we can ask, what does this mean? Particularly in Isaiah, where it's so difficult to understand. If we think of Isaiah as not just being a book that has all these stories in it, but if we think of it as being a giant sequence of parables... There are all these little insights that are just waiting to be discovered. And we can take those insights and say, now, what do you think? What was Isaiah referring to here? This is what I think. But then you talked about Heavenly Father, and we ask him, we say, help me to understand this. And if we have faith that we can get that answer, just as the disciples didn't really need faith when they asked Christ. They, They knew he was there. They knew he was there. But if we have faith and we say, I know that you can answer this. I know you can tell me this. Help me to understand it. And then we go back. Because for me, I don't actually hear a voice explain something to me right then. But as I go back over that scripture that I didn't understand, and I start to break it down, it's amazing how when I ask, it's given. (laughs) And you ask, and then you open your mind. Yeah. So that's not just asking and assuming that you know the answer, but ask open your mind, and then as you reread and restudy and re-examine, then it's amazing the insights that will be poured out upon your mind as you think, so that it's, it's almost like being taught by the Savior personally. Yeah. So that's an amazing reward that you can get from reading the Scriptures, that it is a process. There's times when you go back and you learn even more, or when you go to church and you talk to other people, other people can give you insights that maybe you didn't get as well. But if we're not asking, and if we're only searching by turning to other people and saying, how do I understand this? We're going to miss out on Oh, we'll miss out on the, on the real answer to those questions. Yeah. One day, my son James, he was a little boy. He was about two years old, maybe three. And he had one of those the sphere that has the different shapes that you put that the fit blocks inside, in. Yeah. And he was sitting there playing with this game, and he had a square little cube and he's trying to fit it into a circle or something (laughs) and he kept on trying different places and he couldn't figure out how to get it in there and so i was sitting there watching him and he turned and he tried to hand it to me and he tried to say you do it you do it for me (laughs) so i didn't want to do it for him but i showed him how it worked i put it in one and then i handed it back to him and let him try again And, and then when he finally figured it out and he got it in there he went oh yeah and he celebrated and i i celebrated with him That's a little bit like parables. I think if God just gave us everything, we would be missing out on an opportunity to learn. And by giving us these parables and these mysteries and having us search and ask for help, we can actually learn things that we wouldn't be able to learn otherwise. Isaiah's words are really important. You know, Nephi recorded those words so his descendants could contemplate the teachings of Isaiah. And although the words translated by Nephi, now in the Book of Mormon, are somewhat different than the words of Isaiah in the Old Testament, 
they are similar enough to emphasize the importance for us to study those words diligently. Pray for the spirit of prophecy. You'll receive direct answers and understanding from your Heavenly Father. Thank you again for listening. Have you yet learned to love the words of Isaiah? They certainly can be challenging, but at the same time, amazing to decipher. Next time, we'll talk about the marvelous work that God would perform in the last days, as well as the miracle we call the Book of Mormon. Please join us, and of course, continue to enjoy your reading.